Welcome to the Global Investment Leaders Podcast. Welcome to Global Investment Leaders. I'm Chaz Burkhart, CEO of Rosemont. Today I'm joined by my longtime friend, Bruce Cameron, who is co-founder and the leader of Berkshire Global Advisors, a pioneering investment bank to the financial services industry. Bruce, thanks for joining me. Pleasure to be with you, Chaz. Always uh, enjoy our conversations. Well, one thing that I, I often think of when I think of you and your history is that I'm pretty sure you're the first banker I ever spoke with in this business, and that's going back more than 30 years. So I don't mean to age you, Bruce, but I've got a feeling that you might be the first specialist fig banker in the investment management world. Could that be true? Uh, I'm always uh, reluctant to sort of claim that I've, uh, you know, in, in more important or more earlier in this than anyone else. But uh, when we were setting up the business, there's another gentleman, Bruce McEver, and, and I were the two that set up this firm. And we actually tried to establish investment banking specialty practice at Payne Weber. And we were told specialty practices don't exist. So, yeah, they're generalists. So if there were any others out doing it, we couldn't find them when we were trying to do searches at Payne Weber. So we believe we were early, but I'll allow you to say whether you, you, you know that for sure. I don't know for sure, but I think it's a good chance of it. My, my sense is that you and Bruce were the first specialty bankers. As such, that would make you kind of the reigning godfather of the business. <laughs> Not a title that you necessarily want, but... I think it's one to be proud of because it's been now almost 40 years that you have been doing deals and more than that, advising clients and folks throughout the financial services world. Maybe give us a sense of what Berkshire is today. It's, it's come a long way and obviously competition has increased. There are many more folks in all phases of our business. What is Berkshire today and what do you want it to be reputationally and, and in other ways? You know, at this point, we, we've become, um, I think, a fairly established specialty investment banking group. Our, our concentration is clearly on the investment management, wealth management, and securities industry, but starting to do more in fintech, for instance. And I think what, you know, we are trying as an organization very hard to do is to be um, known as, you know, sort of thoughtful, creative, um, capable investment bankers, but all, always with sort of an ethical um, sort of framework in which we're doing things. And I'm sure most people are trying to run their business as well and not trying to do things unethically. But I think it was one of the things that we we set out from the get-go was to make sure that we took our, our clients' interests. They're always paramount. They're always first. And and never our own first. And that, I think, pervades our organization. Um, I think that's something we've tried to do. And I think we, we've tried to take it to more of a global perspective. I will admit when we first started way back in 1983, we were uh, just worried a little bit about what was going on in the US. And we've gradually been pushed and pushed ourselves to become more focused on what's going on around the world because they, the investment industry is very much a global industry. Capital finds its best use wherever it is. And so we've tried hard to make sure we could deliver thoughts on value and structure, et cetera, around the world. Now, I've, I've watched you do that. And I thought it was interesting in that there are not that many boutiques. And by boutique, I would say employee-owned, kind of no corporate agenda. Generally, you know, let's call it 100 employees or often much less. 
obviously the big firms, the bulge bracket firms have presences around the world, but seeing you develop presences in Australia and the UK, for instance, um, we've watched that. Can you share, Bruce, a couple of metrics or guardrails or particulars about Berkshire as an advisor, kind of size of the universe that you want to advise? Do you want to make a comment about fees? Just so maybe the audience can put in place you versus other firms, larger, smaller, or different altogether. So we, we try very hard to work with firms that are sort of leaders or, or cutting edge. And so for that, we you know, always try to make sure we're flexible. But you know, by and large, I'd say you know, most of the firms with which we work are, are going to be north of a billion dollars in asset center management, probably you know, in some cases well north of that. And I would say that you know a lot of the firms that we work with are under a hundred billion dollars in assets under management. You know our our sweet spot is probably transactions that are valuations from maybe seventy five million to five hundred million. We've done obviously do transactions that are smaller, and we've done transactions that are several billion. But you know I, I think we tend to be middle market is is probably where we are most active by and large. Well, the middle market. The smaller end of the market and the larger end of the market have all been very busy the last few years, as you have helped lead the charge in that regard. And as you and I have chatted about uh, since the onset of COVID, now a couple of years ago, it's just been an incredible euphoria in the M&A markets in our industry. First off, what do you largely attribute that to? Why have we seen so many more buyers, so much more capital come out of the woodwork, and just in general, that many more transactions. I mean, I haven't seen everybody's numbers, but my sense is that many bankers are dealing with record transaction levels and volume. What's behind this? I would agree. Certainly in this sector, I'd be surprised if most people haven't had record years. There's there's probably a number of things going on. Certainly there has been an influx of capital um, supporting an aggregation in this industry. That that by itself would necessarily be effective if if there was no particular reason for people to do things. You know the the influx of capital from private equity to some degree, but from other sources as well, you know, has driven up some of the valuations. Has that gotten people's attention? Yes, I think we'd be um, you know, sort of idiots not to think that that has some impact. But I think it's also that the industry, you know, the, the wealth management industry in particular, but some other sectors of the investment industry are getting to stages where some of the competitive dynamics are being driven by the ability to keep up with the regulation, to keep up with the technology, keep up with the branding and the marketing, frankly, to keep up with the compensation levels that people in the industry are generally demanding and, and receiving. And so it's an industry, it's a time in the industry where a bunch of the key sort of metrics around what is necessary to be successful have, you know, evolved and have gotten more, more specific. And people, you know, the investor base, the client base are more aware of that. And, you know, I think when I first started in the business, if you were a, a wealth management client or an investment council client, um, as it was generally called at that point, you, know, you really wanted somebody who would, who would manage your stocks and bonds and, and sort of 
make sure you didn't make any fundamentally stupid mistakes. But at this day and age, you know, people want to have access on their iPhone or their cell phones that, you know, they're trying to make sure they're invested in a whole range of different types of securities. The, the industry itself is demanding a bunch of regulation. People tend to think about places where they've heard of as opposed to the guy down the street. And so um, all these things are making it more and more difficult. And so at that point, I think a lot of the smaller firms are thinking, one, valuations are actually you know, pretty attractive in my lifetime, metrics at least, and um, having a harder time perhaps competing. And you know, maybe it makes sense to team up with someone else and make sure I can keep going as opposed to losing some of my best clients and watching my business dissipate. And so I think it's just caused a lot of people to think about doing transactions, whereas in the past, they were just happy to keep running their business. Yeah. Well, talking about pricing or overpricing, I'm sure you saw the other day the comment by Focus CEO Rudy Adolph talking about uh, how some number or all of his overpaying competitors might fail. I don't know, Rudy. I, I understand the sentiment because where we sit, as you well know, trying to be a disciplined and thoughtful partner as opposed to a, let's just belly up to the bar and just see what we can get done. Uh, it strikes me that there, there are so many types of buyers and you must see all of them. I mean, you've got permanent capital folks like Cap Trust, Focus, CI Financial in particular, mm -hmm. Enhancement Group, Hightower. Then you've got the private equity folks like Estancia and Lovell Menick and Aqualine and Flexpoint Ford. You've got smaller minority-oriented folks like Kudu and Emigrant, the list goes on and on. What other than price to your client base, those who are sellers, what really distinguishes these firms? And I don't mean necessarily any one firm by name, but what is distinguishing those that are, I guess you could call it succeeding in uh, consummating transactions, but just in terms of getting deals done and quote, beating out others when you run a sell-side process, other than price, which I guess would be the easy default, are, are there particular criteria or terms or structures being used by some of these folks that seem to be winning the day? It's, it's, a, it's a perfect question. And as you see, as much as I do every day, different firms are winning different transactions. And have certain firms been more active in the past year? Yeah, of course. Some firms have gotten more transactions done, but it's not like everybody's doing a transaction with A or with B. There's a lot of different things. And it goes to every one of these firms is unique. And what is important for one may not be so important for another. You know, one transaction that I worked with representing a firm on the West Coast recently, and they were dealing with very high-end clients themselves. And so a lot of their metrics were around the other, the clients of the partners that we're talking, potential partners that we're talking to and the sensitivity to the unique interests and concerns of sort of, you know, multi hundred million dollar types of families and how they were handled and how they were going to be treated and how the service model would continue. And was economics important? Yeah, of course, economics is always important, but it was a lot about what sort of structure and support they were going to have in the context of continuing to serve their clients because uh, you know there's there's a cynicism about some of the people in the industry but i find that the vast majority of wealth managers are very much concerned about doing the right thing by their clients and doing the right thing by their staff so you know that those are the sorts of things that matter you know the relationship that people develop in these conversations actually incredibly important 
um, if people get along well with someone and feel like they have a camaraderie or a, you know a sense that there's an understanding that can make a huge difference you know if, if they don't feel comfortable with someone and even the price is much higher it's like I don't feel comfortable with that person. I'm, you know, they're not going to be responsive. They're not going to be helpful. They're going to cause problems. Um, or this person really understands my business. So, you know, I see that routinely that, listen, I, you know, is, there's, there's no bright line. If someone offers you five times and someone offers you 10 times, is the 10 times got an advantage? Yeah, probably. But, you know, I've seen sellers routinely take valuations that were lower than another one because they felt it was the right fit. Well, it's so true in that there are many other variables that can really make a difference to management. And we've seen it ourselves this year, as you know, and that we've sold a lot of our fund three, our final funds portfolio, because mm -hmm. there was lots of interest, but largely because there were a number of buyers that really hit a nerve with the seller. For instance, Boston Common, mm -hmm. um, who we transacted through your good advice years ago, mm -hmm. and had a wonderful partnership with, we did not want to part company with. Uh, our partners at Boston Common. We, I thought it was just really getting interesting. But to AMG's credit, AMG did a few things that were very appealing and helpful to the management team at Boston Common, such as giving them a fund to sub-advise and selling them back a little bit of the ownership and holding a small minority piece and letting them continue to be the strong employee-owned, women and minority-owned business that they've been for years. Right. Now they're really hitting their stride. So certainly the terms were good, but I think it was much more about all those elements of the fit. And I wondered whether you were seeing things along the lines of our bottom line structures, all things being equal, more attractive than top line revenue sharing structures. Are people that are using significant debt where they're willing to use three, four, five plus turns uh, winning out over those that are much more modest in the use of leverage, such as Rosemont? or other things more structurally. Can you make any comment to that? You know, again, I would say there's probably a bias towards people that are focused on the bottom line as opposed to revenue structures. But, you know, to, to I wouldn't want to leave you the impression that that's what everybody wants. There's some people find that the revenue structure is less invasive, you know, more predictable and, and, and that works for them. So I'd say that there's a huge amount of operating leverage in the investment industry in, in most of these firms, maybe a little less in wealth management firms than asset management firms, but still quite a bit. And so I find that most of the people with whom we deal are a little nervous about a lot of leverage on, you know, somehow because the world has been great for the last 10 years, but go back to 2008 and nine and things happened and, and people saw a little bit what happened at that point. So most are a little leery, one times, two times, free cash flow in terms of some bank debt or something. Okay. If that's important, but you know, people are pretty nervous about high leverage on their business. Well, I think you really hit the nail on the head. And that is if you weren't investing through the financial crisis of 2008, or you didn't have previous experience through 2001 or going back to 1987 or going back to 1974, <laughs> if basically your entire investment life, has been relatively smooth sailing with little volatility, you might not feel that way, but you and I have. And so I think there's just a natural caution that evolves from having been kicked in the head a few times by markets and uh, the economy. I, I, there was an article that I saw today, which I probably misinterpreted, but it was interesting making just that point that people who 
um, you know, been around a little bit longer, like me, you're younger than me, Chance. Um, <laughs> a little bit. That, you know, some of those people are a lot more conservative about leverage, having been through a couple of market downturns, whereas people who are my daughter's age, who, you know, have, have not really been through a market downturn, they were still in school. It's like, oh, we don't worry about that, that because it, you know, everything just goes well. So <laughs> It's almost an academic exercise until it isn't. That's right. One of the thoughts that uh, I've had, and I've shared this with you over time, is the announcement of a transaction is often accompanied by great fanfare. And there are many publications, and generally, I would say industry-wide, folks are quick to embrace a transaction. It's not often that you see a transaction announced, really of any size or type, where there's some sort of feedback or storyline that is is negative or highly dubious. And again, pointing to our mutual experience, we, we've often talked about whether or not it might be more interesting to comment on these transactions when they're a few years old. And in fact, what about the investment banking compensation model itself? What about getting paid based on a three or five year result? But of course, from a buyer's perspective, they haven't achieved anything at the point of sale at the point of purchase. right? And you actually are one of the few people who has dipped his toe in the water through taking equity and being a part of the ownership ledger. And I think you would tell me that you've had some success and you've had some challenge in doing that, but how would you describe that aspect of thinking about fees and value creation? Yeah, I, I think you know, there, there are a couple of consulting firms that are very big on that. I, you know, we've, I think, have believed in, in the clients that we've represented through the years. Have we been perfect? No, I'll never promise you that. But, you know, I think we've generally been on point. And so, you know, if if we're trying to structure something or, or position a firm to, to do better through the years by teaming up with someone, then I've generally thought it'd be not a bad idea to to sort of take some of our compensation in the context of that equity, because it's probably going to do pretty well. And, and through the years, we've done that in, in a number of cases. The other thing that happens in occasion is sometimes if there's a payment at the outset, there's additional payments over time in the context of an earnout or, you know, options or things like that. And sometimes our clients prefer that we take part of our compensation based on what they actually receive as opposed to what's estimated to be the case at the outset. And I'd say in those cases, we've also done very well. So, you know, it, it's sometimes simpler just to get the investment bank out of the picture so they stay on in terms of being involved in the financials and all that. I get that. And it allows the firm to sort of run their business without any other party being involved. But, you know, we, we've, we've enjoyed the opportunity to own equity. We did one early on with a client that will go unnamed and, and it was a mistake because they they didn't do well they uh got into a management fight internally but you know that that was the exception generally that's proved the rule for us we've we've generally done quite well with our investments like that a management fight you mean the type of thing that we have to deal with as owners indefinitely <laughs> yeah this 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 one was a transaction where they sold to an international partner and then the management team and the international partner got sideways with where they were going with the business. And when all was said and done, there wasn't a lot left. So our equity became more wallpaper than it was anything else. But unfortunately, Bruce, I mean, you know, and, and I think you would admit, though I'll, I'll give you the chance to admit or deny that the, uh, 
the M&A marketplace is in fact littered with plenty of failures. And that's yes. not to say, that's not to say, I'm not making an, an overarching judgment on rationale for not pursuing M&A as a seller or as a growth strategy, just that facts are much like marriages, at least in this country, <laughs> a high percentage of them, unfortunately, end up in divorce, the best laid plans. And you know why. And it could be through no fault of the buyer's and seller's original due diligence or plans or your work as a banker. It can be that there was a corporate action taken by the acquirer where the owner of the business was subsequently acquired by another owner, another financial institution. The game of musical chairs in the ownership of investment management companies is long. It can be that there were unfortunate events with the principals. And as you and I have come to find out the hard way, oftentimes a few key people, if they're not there, uh, all of a sudden the fortunes of the business can wane quickly and owners change their minds. How, how about that? People actually change their minds over time as to what they want out of an owner and what they feel they're getting that is uh, worth that owner's seat and right. worth that owner having the equity position that they have. So perhaps through no fault of their own initially, a number of transactions do end up in divorce, or at least they end up pivoting and moving to other homes or parts of businesses come apart. I don't know if you think there's anything that can be done from your position as an advisor to either try to help keep things more on the rails going forward or to be as much a counselor to some of these inevitable bumps in the road going forward, as opposed to the, the unfortunate reputation of some bankers, which is check please. And if I never see you again and I earned a good fee, you know, that's okay, on to the next. Your, your observation is born out of facts that are in fact true. I think an awful lot of M&A has been less than, than perfectly successful. I think, frankly, in the investment industry, there was a reputation that an awful lot of the deals were not very successful. It was one of the things that we as an organization took very much to heart. And you know, I'm, I'm, believe we've gotten better through the years. Uh, um, we went back and looked. This is now probably eight or nine years dated, but we looked at a lot of the deals that we'd done. We sort of went back through our history and tried to see whether the team was in place and the AUM was at least the same, if not better. And we actually had a very good percentage of success. It was, I think it was like 75 or 80% was the case. Mm -hmm. It wasn't 100%. Uh, that, you know, I think if that was the case, I'd start wondering if we were trying to pull Bernie Madoff on you. But, <laughs> you know, we, we try hard. We I worked on a transaction that closed a little over two years ago and through a set of events that had nothing to do with our client, a parent changing hands, I continue to work with that business head uh, who is now trying to reposition his business. And he, he calls me any time of day, you know, all, you know, my wife says, are you working for him? And I say, no, but you know, I have a relationship and I feel I have an obligation to him. And so, you know, I, he will get repositioned and I'm quite certain he'll do just fine. But that's kind of what I think you have to do is you, you owe it to people. If they've hired you, you owe it to them to give them your best advice, you know, until they're perfectly situated. Well, honestly, Bruce, I think that's one of the things that helps distinguish you and other good bankers who provide consistent sounding boards and are there to talk with their clients for years without a transaction. I do think that's really important. 
we tried to do that. I had some people in today and they sort of said, we're trying to position for five years out. And I said, perfect. You know, we, we can work with you over that time frame. Just give you advice, whether it's formal or informal, because we'll get to know you better. I think that's very important. I guess the final thing that I would ask is whether or not you foresee any particular changing of the guard or other notable events or volatility, or is there some writing on the wall that changes the the kind of the froth and fury of the M&A markets? What do you see coming along? Is it inflation? Is it interest rate? spiking? Is it the fact that perhaps a number of the buyers will either be unrequited in the time frame in which they in which they are seeking to make their return? Do you think there's any any foundation being laid in particular that would change the directions or the outcomes of today's deals? Uh, you know, my, my historical experience, Chaz, is that we, we've had, as, as you've already commented, we've had sort of a 10-year, 11-year 12 years at this point run of markets that have generally been up. I know we had a brief downturn uh, in 2019, but I, I think at some point we have another correction in the marketplace that's more than a month or two. And that, you know, we went through that in 2008 and nine, we had a bunch of things that fell out as a result of that and, you know, some pretty significant impact on parts of the financial industry. If you go back to 2001 or certainly go back to 1988, 87, you know, it caused a bunch of people to reconsider their priorities, their focus, et cetera. And I think we will have another one of those sort of events. You know, I hope it's not soon, but history says that, you know, we've had probably a little bit too long a run and we're starting to see the excesses in the market. And that will cause a bunch of the people that are opportunistic, if you will, or opportunists, if you're a cynic, um, you know, to sort of get their head handed to them or to sort of step back and say, this isn't for me. And we'll find those investors, those sort of organizations that really see the investment industry or the wealth industry as core to their business, who will stick with it and and continue to invest through that. I I don't know when that's going to happen, but there's enough things out there, whether it's unrest internationally in terms of politics, whether it's the excesses again of, you know, sort of people over-investing or, you know, over-leveraging, but at some point we'll get a correction and, and it'll cause some of this stuff to back up. I agree. And like you, have no idea when that might happen and certainly not going to hazard a guess. But in the meantime, I don't think either of us are near retirement. So (laughs) on we'll go. My wife doesn't want me at home. So I'll keep coming to the office. I understand. (laughs) Well, Bruce, always a pleasure. Thanks again for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks, Josh, for the opportunity. 